Guy Stagg spent 10 months walking from Canterbury to Jerusalem, following medieval pilgrim paths across 5,500 kilometres. He began the journey after several years of mental illness, hoping that the walk would heal him. A non-believer, he wanted to understand religion by taking part in its rituals in the monasteries and other religious communities in which he stayed. The Crossway, published by Picador, is an account of his journey, a mix of travel and memoir, history and current affairs. Guy came into the Church Times offices to talk about his extraordinary journey. The Crossway is available to buy from Church House Bookshop. And if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So you spent 10 months walking from Canterbury to Jerusalem following medieval pilgrimage paths. What prompted you to do this? What inspired it? If you'd asked me that question just before I left, I would have told you I wanted an adventure, I wanted a change, I wanted to travel, maybe I wanted to learn a bit more about religion. And all of those things were true, but that's not really the answer. The real answer is that in the years before the walk, I'd had quite a long period of depression. And I was just recovering from that, but I still felt that my life didn't have the purpose, didn't have the sense of direction that I wanted. I still didn't feel like I'd fully recovered. And so I came up with the idea of walking from Canterbury via Rome and Istanbul to Jerusalem as a way to make myself whole again. But if you'd asked me that at the time, that's not what I would have said. Partly because I didn't understand my motives very well, and partly because that idea, essentially, to take part in a religious ritual in order to heal myself, that's a strange thing for a non-believer to do. And it was only over the course of the walk that I understood that's why I was doing it. And you say something about what stage you're at in life. You'd, you'd graduated from university, you'd worked a couple of years as a journalist. That's right. So I, I graduated in 2009. I'd done a few things, but for the last two years I'd been working as a journalist. Um, and although I knew that those things weren't quite what I wanted to do, I, I hadn't worked out what, what path I wanted to take in life. And the idea of walking came sort of on a bit of a whim. One weekend, I decided to leave my flat in London and spend, spend two days just walking from London to Canterbury. And it was when I got to Canterbury, after a a not very successful walk, uh, and I saw the stone outside Canterbury Cathedral, which says Via Francigena, Canterbury to Rome. That's where the idea came from, and that was the summer of 2012. And then six months later, I was heading out right. to do the, the full thing. You just think about you, you said you're not a believer. You mentioned the book, you had a kind of Anglican upbringing, so you were familiar with the church. And with I was familiar, yeah. So when I was at school, we went to church about twice a week. Um, and, you know, my parents go to church at, at Christmas, sometimes at Easter. Mm. But it's that, you know, perhaps typical, essentially agnostic with, with some familiarity with the, the liturgy and the ritual, but, but no real piety and, and no serious belief underneath it. I think you mentioned the book of when you were at Cambridge, reading about atheism and deciding firmly you're not, you know, you didn't believe in God. That's right. Would many of your friends who, who knew you then been in surprise that you're undertaking this kind of explicitly religious pilgrimage? Yes, I think they would have done. Um, not only was I 
was I not a believer, but there was a period of time at university where I was, I was fairly certain that I didn't believe. I think like a lot of people who engage with it superficially, uh, I, I basically come to the conclusion that people who believed were either, either mad or stupid or, or maybe afraid of dying. And that, 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 is a, that is a sufficient explanation if, you, if, if, as I say, you don't engage with it very deeply. But as soon as you start thinking about the fact that you know, some very serious minds have believed, but also some very saintly people, some people who are kind and content in ways that, that I certainly wasn't, that becomes unsatisfactory. And so I was trying to work that out you know, when I went on this walk. I, I did want to understand better why other people believed. But to go back to your question, yes, nothing in my uh, religious life up to that point would have suggested that I was going to go on this walk. But equally, I, you know, I wasn't even very keen on hiking and rambling. You know, I, I wasn't a walker either. So I think for most of my friends, it, it came out of the blue. Right. And how did your family react when you said you're setting off for 10 months? Um, I think my dad had given me the Patrick Lee Fermor books about walking from uh, the Hook of Holland to Constantinople, as he called it, uh, you know, when I was a teenager. So I think my father probably thought it was a, a slightly unexpected adventure, but but a bit of an adventure nonetheless. Um, and I think my mother, understandably, just worried that I wouldn't be safe. Actually, I heard a talk about pilgrimage recently at a festival we ran, and, and someone was saying it actually can be quite scary. It, it is quite dangerous. And certainly for many of the pilgrims throughout history you described, it was in, in, you described in the book, it was incredibly dangerous, even life-threatening. Did you ever feel in danger? I didn't, is the answer. And that's not because I'm especially brave. The reason is that, um, you know, the first time that you ever get caught up in a terrorist attack or that you know, the, the police fire at you, you don't really know what's going on. You're surprised, you're confused, and part of your mind is thinking, oh, is this, is this you know, the thing I see on the news, the thing I read about, is, is this what's happening now? So you don't really have time to process it. And certainly in my own case, that, that's what was happening. I was maybe a bit reckless, but predominantly I was naive. And so I just, I didn't realise that I was in life-threatening situations really until after they'd finished. Now, if I did it again, if I had to do the walk all over again, if I was in some of those situations again, then I would be scared. But that's because I would now realise the threat. Right, right. And so you set off January 2013? That's right, yeah, January the 1st. Um, and then what astonishes a lot of people that you encounter on the walk is that you're walking in winter and you're virtually the only pilgrim. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Obviously, you knew that setting out that the conditions would be pretty difficult and um, treacherous. Um, did you, I mean, had, it sounds trivial, but had you considered kind of delaying the walk until spring or something like no, that? No, that, that's a very good point. Um, I, I hadn't, I was determined to leave as soon as possible. And the reason was that I worried that if I left it, you know, even until the spring, I'd get a small promotion, I'd meet someone I liked, whatever the excuse was, some small excuse would have, would have knocked me off course. And so I wanted the time between coming up with the idea and, and setting off to be as, as short as was possible. And then something else happened, and this wasn't what I anticipated at all, which is that when I began walking in the winter, um, there were fewer hours of light in the day. It was cold. I, I couldn't really camp out at night. Um, sometimes the, the terrain was difficult, and once I was in the mountains, it was very difficult. 
And as a result, people were far more willing or far more enthusiastic about helping me, right. about making sure I was going in the right direction, about offering me food, about making sure I had somewhere to stay at night. And so I was you know, treated with far more generosity and hospitality than I perhaps would have been if I'd left in the spring when it, you know, each night, if all else fails, I could have just stayed in my tent. Uh, and so it had an unexpected advantage in that, in that respect. Interesting. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book that um, campsites and things weren't open, I think, and you couldn't afford to stay in a hotel every night. So you did yeah. rely on the kindness of strangers, many yeah. of whom were found in monasteries. and. That's right. I, when I started out, I had a list which got me about as far as Switzerland of churches, monasteries, convents, presbyteries along the way. The problem was, as I as I mentioned, because I was work, walking in, in the winter and these days were very short, if I got a bit lost, if I mistimed things, I wouldn't get to whichever town or village I, I had in mind. Uh, and the first time this happened, I, I just had to go up to, I think I found a priest or I found a, some people in the church, explained what had happened and they said, oh well don't worry, um, you know, our, our church has a meeting room or whatever, you can sleep on the floor there. And I realised that that even if I hadn't got to the right the, the location I had in mind, as long as I was talking to someone and explained what I did, then normally they would try and help me because you know once you're outside a city, if you've got someone in your village and they don't have anywhere to sleep, they're just going to stay in your village until <laughs> until you or someone else helps them. I wouldn't have known that before I left. I wouldn't have had the courage to do it before I left. But once I'd realised once or twice I could do it, I didn't need to keep to the strict right. list of places I can stay. I could, on the whole, just rely on if I, you know, if I was in a settlement of some sort, someone would be able to help me. Yeah, there's one moment where I think you're in the Alps and the weather gets really quite bad and you're almost lost in like a, a blizzard or something. Was that? Was that That's right? right. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think you're entertaining ideas of you know not making it. I think in the book, or that people have been found in those conditions. Yeah. So I mean, that must have been incredibly scary. And it was, except again, it was it was also people tell you stories about people climbing up mountains and getting lost, yeah. and you hear the stories and you don't really imagine that 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 this could happen to you, and then you find yourself on a mountainside and the visibility is nothing at all. There's snow everywhere, and just you know ten or fifteen minutes ago you could see and you knew where you were going and you realise that those stories that people tell you, you're in one of those stories, but it still takes time to sink in. Um, but, but yes, it was, it was uh, a bit of a low moment. Then there's a great moment when you come upon a guest house, I think, and say, are you open? And the yeah. man laughs and says, of course we are, or something like well, that. Well, that, that's the hospice at the top of the right. Great St Bernard Pass, which is where I'd been aiming for. Um, and you know, where I'd been planning to get oh. to when I started walking. So that wasn't a complete fluke, right, but, right. but yes. And, and the other thing about that is, I think it gives you a slight sense of what it would have been like to travel these routes in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. when there's no natural light, there's you know, very poor infrastructure, and where coming across a guest house mm-hmm. or a monastery would feel like a refuge in the way that it doesn't really in, in, in the modern world, because you know that there'll be somewhere else you can probably look up on your phone and find yeah. somewhere Airbnb to yeah, stay in yeah and I guess if you're staying in a hotel or a and b there's a commercial transaction there which there isn't when you're I mean, do, how did it feel being the recipient of, of hospitality was it quite as someone who seemed to have been quite successful in life thus far was it quite humbling or difficult ever or simply more of a relief I um I I have this idea that 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 some forms of ritual are, are, are a form of moral training 
And in my own case, I like to think of myself as independent, as self-sufficient. And very early on in the walk, it became clear because of the unfamiliar terrain, the difficult conditions, that you know I wasn't going to be able to make it just on my own power, my own steam. That I had to ask help, you know, on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. And to begin with, this was hard, except for the fact that I was sort of desperate, so it, it was also necessary. And if you're constantly having to ask people for help and really ask people for people's charity, your your perhaps inflated sense of self-worth does begin to diminish. But what you get in return is you your sense of other people's kindness just goes up and up and up because people when you're asking for help, people seemingly will help you. And so there was there was surprise, there was enormous gratitude and I, I think hopefully there was a there was a greater sense of humility. Mm. And at some of the places you stay you, you take part in mass or in um, Vespers or even song, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, how, how was that? And then you said you were trying to find a ritual could heal you, is that, is that right? Yeah. Or if walking could heal you? Yeah. It, the hope was that the walk would heal Yes. and that, that also I'd, I'd get some insight into the faith of the people I was meeting. Yes there ritual yeah. um, I mean that was that was one of the surprising sort of treasures of the walk uh, I you know I, I was familiar with Church of England services so Catholic services were not too unfamiliar um, but I had no real idea of the monastic tradition book of hours monastic liturgy Gregorian chant and you know, I would spend my days walking and then I'd come into these places that felt like sanctuaries and then we'd go to sort of evening prayer um, and you'd enter this rhythm which hasn't really changed for many years and it's, I, I found it you know, enormously um, nourishing I guess which is not to say that there weren't times when I was bored <laughs> or distracted and once I got into orthodox countries it took me a very long time to just learn my way around the services but I'm, I'm glad I did it. I don't think I, there would have been any other way to, to get into it, apart from just exposing yourself to it again and again and letting whatever you know, non-rational uh, effect it might have on you, let that slowly seep in and absorb over time. You're speaking to Father Philotheus. Mm. Um, he's in the Latin church, people need to understand before they can believe. In the Eastern church, they need to believe before they can understand. But, Mm. So an extent to which participating in ritual put to one side the kind of intellectual questions about belief and you just immerse yourself and let it yes. affect you. Yes. I, I think that one of the things I didn't understand before I left is that there is such a thing as religious or mystical experience. I had imagined that when people are praying, what they're essentially doing is closing their eyes and whispering or muttering under their breath. And maybe for some people that's the case. But if you're doing this for four, six, seven hours a day, that, that's not sufficient. And the, the, what is going on when, when especially sort of religious or monks and nuns are, are worshipping is that they, they have an inner life and they have this, this sort of wealth of experience that goes on in silence and that they're exploring the, that and they're navigating that and that, that whatever encounters they have during that time sort of has some effect on who they are the rest of the time. 
and that that sort of realm of experience existed I wasn't aware of and I'm not sure I really you know entered it myself but it I think that by by trying to participate in the ritual you get you get a window on it a glimpse on it which if I'd read about it in a book it I I wouldn't have you know I, it would have meant nothing to me I thought it was fascinating um, some of the conversations you have with monks about why they enter the monastic life. Um, mm. I think for one, it's he says, I, "It's an escape from the world," but for others, it's um, you think they're there. I think you said to actually confront themselves in some ways. Did it seem? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just interested to talk a bit about that, particularly with the kind of modern world where we need to slow down, and is an extent to which all the technology is a form of escaping ourselves, and this kind of silence prayerful life is actually I, mean, I remember Justin Welby saying it's one of the most dangerous things you can do entering a religious order because you're confronted with yourself and all yeah. the distractions that can yeah the way you've evade that you just haven't got anymore it's an incredibly risky endeavour yeah. did that strike you about those people's lives that they were absolutely um, I think that that insight parallels the self-understanding that came over the course of the war Early on in the walk, I had various sort of biographical experiences that I didn't want to think about, various causes of unhappiness and regret that I didn't want to engage with. And I left and started walking, really in the hope of outwalking those, of escaping those. And when I saw and interacted with people who'd entered religious orders, or even found out about the history of various sort of saints and pilgrims, mm. This is what I saw them doing. I thought, well, here is a way of escaping the world. And it's sort of true in a superficial sense. You know, you're putting aside a lot of material things. You're not watching on the internet or on the TV, watching TV the whole time. But I began to realize over the course of my walk that that what I was doing was not an escape from my life, that, that the long hours I was spending in my own head as I walked um, were... A space in which I could engage with these parts of myself I preferred to forget and which I really had to because there was nothing else to think about and at the same time I was realizing with these people that I was meeting that they weren't flying away from the world that if you wanted to escape that wouldn't sustain you for years and years in the monastery and that what they were actually doing was finding was freeing themselves from distractions so that they could engage with themselves, but also a, a version of reality which is not the sense of reality that you find in the, you know, in the modern world around you. And you meet a few people who are hermits or have been hermits at some point. Well, I I I'm, I go to a hermitage when I'm in That's Lebanon, right. and and I, I there there is a hermit there, and I was sort of planning to go and interview him or something, and in the end we just sit next to each other and don't say anything. And how was that silence? Was that difficult? No, I I think by that point it was sort of a relief actually. You also talk a lot about in where you, there's conversations about the reason people go on pilgrimage. Sister Marie Bati, um, she says they all want to learn what the, what they believe. Pilgrims, yeah. monks, actually, all, all the same. Um, but for others, it can be this, I guess. Because pilgrimage has become very popular, hasn't it, in recent years? It has, yeah. Camino yeah. and things. Um, is there a danger, a sense which it's tapped into something 
deep that's going on in people or, or can it just be another form of tourism do you think certainly it can be another form of tourism but that's not new uh, you know you read medieval writers about pilgrimage and they complain of exactly the same thing people leaving their homes to go mm. on a jolly as for whether it taps into something deeper i think that you know the idea that religious ritual and something like a pilgrimage is only for believers is is not true and I think that idea has less force at least in, in the example of pilgrimage than it did so the possibility that you could maybe not know what you believe or or not believe but still take part in the hope of you know working out that doubt or just getting deeper into that doubt I think that idea is, is a bit more widespread and the other thing that I think is potentially true is if the impulse to worship is in fact sort of biological if it's something quite deep within us then people are going to find ways of exploring it and expressing it and if taking part in mainstream religion becomes more and more of a minority activity that impulse towards worship doesn't go away it just gets redirected and there are some ways you can direct it that are going to be harmful you know what you're worshipping is money for example that's probably going to not going to fulfill you or satisfy you in the end and there are ways that you can direct it that are going to hopefully be more beneficial but if people feel uncomfortable with the church they've grown up in or the mainstream churches then they need other ways to explore it and maybe that's going to be yoga or mindfulness meditation or maybe it's going to be going on a pilgrimage mm. we ran a story recently actually about on the Camino Santiago there are church chaplains now. They they find there's more and more hunger to talk about spiritual matters. More and more people on these pilgrimages. So the church is actually sending chaplains to accompany or just yeah. be there, which I guess is is the church perhaps not relying on everyone coming to services, but going to where people are. Yeah, which I guess seems sensible. That I mean that seems like a very good idea. The other thing is also that a question like what makes you happy or how do you find meaning or purpose in life. It's a slightly awkward question to ask, and if you don't have a very good answer, it's the kind of question you would rather not ask yourself, you'd rather avoid. And it's quite easy to avoid, you know, there's, there are plenty of, of distractions available to you that stop you engaging with a question like that. And it's only when you've got a bit of time and space that, that you can really explore those questions. And, I mean, really to do a pilgrimage, you're going to need a bit of time, you're going to need a bit of space, because you have to walk somewhere. Walking is a slow way of travelling. Maybe you can do it on a bike. And as a result, people get that space, possibly for the first time in their life, certainly in the first time in a while, where they can ask those questions. Mm. And one of the things that, that religion can help with in the answering of those questions, I'm, I'm cautious about religious traditions which try and give you all of the answers, but it can give you structures and framework and language for asking those questions in more profound ways. Just going back to the walk, um, Pope, Pope Benedict announces his resignation. Mm -hmm. So then your walk towards Rome, I think, takes on a, a, perhaps a greater sense of urgency or purpose. Several times in the journey, things happened in the world outside mm -hmm. that were unrelated to my journey or the reasons why I'd gone on my journey, but which, which had an impact on it and which at times made it feel as if this decision, this sort of whim almost, had, you know, had a fated feel. And the first one of these was when 
six weeks after I left for the first time in I, I think hundreds, yeah. maybe even a thousand years, yeah. the Pope resigned. No one predicted it. And um, as, a, as a result, it meant I was getting to Rome in time for, I hoped to get for the announcement of the new Pope, that didn't happen, but it was a few weeks later, the first oh. Easter with the new Pope. Yes. So Rome obviously is, is busy during Holy Week anyway, and at this point there was a particular sense of significance, occasion, celebration, because of this unique event. And there was even, although this was early days, it wasn't obvious yet, but there was even a lot of excitement about the particular personality of this new Pope. However, because when I got to Rome, I was surrounded by, first of all, pilgrims, and second of all, pilgrims who were there mostly because they were committed believers. This curious thing that I was doing, walking to Jerusalem in the hope that it would have some healing effect, suddenly began to make a bit less sense because I, I didn't believe and here were people who did believe and it was clear to me the distance between us when it had not been so clear if I was just sitting at you know morning prayers in a little convent somewhere and the sort of doubts and uncertainties I'd had about why exactly I was doing this walk which I'd been able to forget fairly successfully they became kind of obvious to me it happens quite a few times on the walk doesn't it there's there's times of quite profound doubt about why you're walking and will yes. the walk um, kind of achieve its purpose yes which is finding healing yes but how did you navigate that and get get through it um, I think that as you say there were several moments of doubt and there was one moment about midway through the walk where I was fairly convinced that I was going to have to cut it short, was going to have to fly home. I'd been hoping that I would be get, get better and better as I walked, and it seemed in fact as if I was getting worse. I was regressing back to the habits and the ways of thinking that had characterised uh, the period of mental illness. And what changed? Well, two things. First of all, I got to Istanbul during the Taksim Square protests summer of 2013 and there was a big all-consuming event going on very close to where I happened to be staying and this just took me out of myself you know I stopped thinking about myself and my you know, memories and my inner landscape and just paid attention to this remarkable event and that's always healthy I think if you've been spending a lot of time with your own thoughts that was the first thing and then the second thing was around that period of time I also went to stay in Mount Athos in Greece. And this was similar to the experience I'd been having in various monasteries, but it was intense because for three or four days I only stayed in monasteries and I only interacted with monks and pilgrims. And I can't pinpoint what happened there. You know, I spent a lot of time, you get up very early in the morning and go to these very long services. I spent a lot of time sleepy, and probably quite a lot of time bored. But I think my sense of time or of purpose changed a little bit so that by the time I was I was in Istanbul where I'd imagined I would fly home I thought well I don't know whether or not getting to Jerusalem will make, fix anything the idea I've had up until now just get to Jerusalem everything will be okay that's broken down but maybe I don't need to stop walking 
maybe I just need to find a new reason to walk. And that new reason has something to do with trying to just take it one day at a time, you know, pay attention to what's going on one day at a time, and maybe ignore the ultimate destination. And I think that's a more sustainable way to do a long walk um, and possibly a more sustainable way to live as well. By not putting yourself under pressure to reach some goal or have an epiphany. Yeah, exactly. Not loading your whole sense of purpose on a, a normally quite arbitrary destination or end. And then is it from... When did you get to Tripoli in Lebanon? That's right, yeah. And there's another dramatic and perhaps traumatic event. Yeah, so then I was in... I'd arrived in Tripoli in Lebanon. Uh, there's a, a small monastery in the hills just above the town or above the city. I went to spend the night there. And then I had to go back into the city because I was going to start walking from the north of the country. And at around midday or just after uh, Friday prayers... Uh, a pair of bombs went off in the centre of the city. This was the largest terrorist attack since since the Civil War. And because of a sort of mixture of confusion and uncertainty and uh, possibly silliness, I, I ended up trying to leave the city. I was planning to get a coach or bus to the north of the country to start walking and the attack was going on in the north of the city and I ended up getting onto a minibus that attempted to drive through the area of the attack so I found myself driving into the, the place of the worst damage um, and and obviously this was you know like nothing I'd seen before and, and a, a, an appalling event to encounter and then while I was walking in Lebanon with this sort of experience I guess jangling around in my head um, I once or twice got ill, drunk some water I shouldn't have done, ate some food I shouldn't have done. Um, I had a long period where I wasn't able to keep food down, so I was eating less and less each day. I was becoming dehydrated, but still trying to cover 20 or 30 kilometers a day, becoming very weak, becoming maybe a little feverish. Um, and yes, I, I reached sort of about two thirds of the way through the country. I reached another low point. However, Unlike the previous points in the walk where these low points seemed like reasons to give up, to stop walking, here I was able to get a little bit of perspective. I knew that I wasn't happy at the moment, but I felt hopeful and maybe even confident that, that this would pass, that, that I would come out the other side of this. And once you've got that, that insight into your experience, that's something that can, you know, it got me to the end of the walk, but I think it's also can stay with me for the rest of my life in one form or another. That's really interesting. And then you do finally get to Jerusalem. At last. At last. How did that feel? Was it elation or anti-climax? <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid it wasn't elation. When you talk to people who, who, do, who go for runs, normally if they run, say, a, a 10k mm. fun run, they get to the end and they get a big endorphin yeah. kick. They run a marathon, they get to the end, they're just tired. They're just glad it's over. It was sort of the same. When I got to Rome, I remember the first time I saw the city, a real sort of heart-thumping sense of excitement. When I got to Jerusalem, you know, I was, I was relieved. I was tired. Maybe I was a bit sad. Maybe I was a bit glad. 
it was early in the morning and one of the things I just wanted to do was to call my parents as quickly as possible but obviously there was a time difference and so I didn't want to wake them up too early you know and then part of me was thinking well I'm, I'm going home soon well, I don't know it's the right question really but did you feel the walk did heal you I got everything I hoped from out of the walk but that fact was not immediately obvious to me major life experiences take time to digest it takes a while to work out what you've experienced and one of the great things about about writing is it gives you that time and space to to, to explore that and so yes it, it, it the healing work happened but really it was the four years I spent writing the book that helped me to understand how and why and in what way and so it's a sort of a two-hander now another book is done now I can say it with some confidence, but when I got to the end of the walk, I wasn't sure, you know. I needed to work it out on the page. When did you decide to write a book? Was that after you came back or before you set out or during? No, before I set out, I, I didn't know that I was going to write about it. I knew I was going to keep notes. Yeah. I worked as a journalist for a while. I've always kept a diary. That was, that was a sort of force of habit almost. But equally, I, I wasn't planning to write a book. And if, if that had been the main reason for doing the walk, I would have given up, you know, probably in the Alps. But over the course of the walk, two things happened. First of all, these sort of remarkable current affairs, historical events were going on that I'd, I'd witnessed. And so I felt that, that they were worth recording just because that seemed a unique experience. And then also this, this changing understanding of religion, some insight into why people believe, which was something that I felt wasn't as widely known as it should have been. And certainly, you know, atheists, agnostics, non-believers, it was probably something that they didn't really understand. And that felt worth exploring and worth writing about. So it was when I got to the end of the walk that I felt that this deserves to have a book written about it. And, and that, then I knew what I was going to be doing for the next few years. You said you'd be kind enough to perhaps just read a short... Yes, of course. So I'm just going to read from the beginning of the book. There's a little prologue that introduces it. And then this will give you a taster of what happened most nights on my walk. Ecole Saint-Jean-Baptiste de la Salle was a bungalow. Three bungalows, forming three sides of a courtyard. The yard's surface was decorated with a circle, a star, a shield and mantling. The school crest, maybe, or a playground game chalked onto the concrete. Beyond was a porch, enclosing a locked set of double doors. Round the back I found more bungalows, as well as a dining room and a chapel. I also found a nativity scene with three wise men the size of schoolboys and a manger trussed in fairy lights, blinking onto the lawn. I had been given this address the previous morning. It was a boarding school run by the Society of St Pius X, and the priests were happy to host pilgrims, or so I was told. However, I was given no phone number, meaning I could not ring ahead and ask to stay. Now I worried that nobody was home. Eventually a young priest came out to meet me, I tried to explain myself, 
telling him that I left Canterbury four days ago and was following the Via Francigena across France, Switzerland. The priest cut me off. You want somewhere to sleep? Please. To stay for how long? One night. Tomorrow our students return. I leave in the morning. We have mass in the morning. After mass. The priest folded, unfolded his arms. He was tall and lanky, breathing loud through his nose. You are alone? he asked. Yes. All alone? All alone. His name was Father Robert. He thought there were some spare beds in the infirmary. There. I could sleep there. The double doors opened onto a hall with paper chains tied to the ceiling and a Christmas tree sagging in the corner. The infirmary was on the far side. Father Robert gave me the key and made me promise to lock up when I left. Otherwise the boys would steal the medical supplies. Two beds ran the length of the infirmary. One of them looked like an operating table, its head fixed at a high angle. The other bed had a rubber mattress, elastic edge sheets, and a quicker floop duvet cover. Garlands of tinsel hung from the shelves, and the whole room had the greenish tang of antiseptic mixed with floor polish. A shower two-thirds the size of a normal unit stood at one end, its panels not glass but tinted plastic. When I tried to wash, I banged my elbows and shins. An hour later, Father Robert was back. Dinner time. The priests lived in an apartment off the entrance hall. Two more were waiting for me in the kitchen. Father Joseph was a shy man with a shy smile, bending over the oven in a blue apron. Father Jean was a small, stubbed figure with a yawning mouth, who sat at the table discussing which of the school's students would go to seminary, how well Aris was performing in the local football league, and what day the baby Jesus was circumcised. When I asked about the menu for the evening, Father Joseph placed a tray in the middle of the table, its contents hidden under a drying up cloth. Then Father Jean drummed on the tabletop, and Father Joseph whipped the cloth away, revealing a basket of bread, a bowl of oil, and four pots of tapenade. Green olive, black olive, aubergine, and chickpea. Caviar, said Father Joseph. Caviar for the peasants, said Father Robert. For the priests, said Father Jean. For the pilgrim. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.